I don't watch a lot of talk shows, uh, but even with my limited exposure to talk shows, I've noticed that there's a question that crops up time and again, and it's asked in different ways, but it essentially amounts to this. What's the secret of your success? And those being interviewed give all kinds of answers. They say things like, I'm a fighter. I had to work really hard to get where I am today. Others say, well, I was just in the right place at the right time. I just got lucky. Others, I believed in myself and I never stopped pursuing my dreams. They're the kind of answers that we might hear. And if you Google the word secrets of success, you will discover endless lists of things that you must do to be successful. The simplest list I came across consisted of four facets of a successful person. Vision, honesty, gratitude, and adaptiveness. And they're admirable qualities. As it happens, Ezra, who's the central character of today's passage, possessed all of those qualities, and yet he didn't attribute his success to them. There's a phrase that appears six times in chapters 7 and 8, and it goes like this. The good hand of the Lord was upon me. That, if you like, was the secret to Ezra's success. And today we're going to try and find out why the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. Uh, But before we do that, we need to understand where Ezra's story fits into the one unified story of the Bible. So I'm going to give a two-minute overview that will take us all the way from Exodus right up uh, to the book of Ezra. So it's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Earlier this month, we saw that the nation of Israel were held captive in Egypt. They were slaves. And then after about 400 years, God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. You remember how Moses led the people out. And God took his people to the border of the land that he had promised to give them. But Israel shrank back in fear. They didn't enter the promised land because they were afraid of the inhabitants, the Canaanites. Consequently, they spent the next 40 years wandering aimlessly in the desert. After that, Joshua led the people into the promised land, and they took possession of it. So God had done all that for Israel, and then Israel basically uh, turned its back on God, rebelled against God. The nation's calling was to follow God's law and show the other nations, the surrounding nations, what God is like. But they didn't do that. In fact, the book of Judges describes Israel's total failure as they become no different to the Canaanites. And during this time, Israel were led by a series of judges, people like uh, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. They were political and military leaders. So don't think high court judge with a wig and a gavel. Think more tribal chieftain. So uh, after this long period of judges, uh, Israel adopts a king, King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. And it is during Solomon's reign that Israel reaches the height of its power and influence. But it doesn't last. Things go downhill fast. Because after Solomon's reign, uh, when power passes to his son Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel splits in two, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. They are led by a succession of kings, most of whom are not godly men, and so they lead the nation astray. Eventually, after repeated warnings from the prophets, God brings judgment on the nation. The ten northern tribes, who are known as Israel, are conquered by the Assyrians, and they are carried off into captivity. 
and they are gone forever. We don't hear anything more about the northern tribes. The two southern tribes, known as Judah, about 200 years later, they are conquered by the Babylonians, and they're carted off into captivity in Babylon. So now we're getting close to the part where Ezra fits in. The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, and then 70 years after uh, Judah, the southern tribes were taken into captivity in Babylon, so a fairly short period of time, uh, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And this Persian king, King Cyrus the Great, allows some of these exiles who are in Babylon to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. Then 90 years after this first lot of exiles return, a second lot are allowed to return, and this group is led by a man named Ezra. This is a crucial point in Israel's history. The nation's rebellion against God had led to their captivity in Babylon, but now there is a ray of hope. The exiles are beginning to return, and the temple has been rebuilt. But already the the, um, cracks are starting to appear. Uh, Once again, the nation has gone astray, largely because of its involvement with other people groups in the area. And Israel are beginning to adopt what are described as the detestable practices of the Canaanites. But the hand of the Lord is upon Ezra, whose job it is to bring about some very important and long-awaited reforms. So our focus this morning is on Ezra. What made him the kind of person that God was able to use to make such a difference? Well, three things. And if you're going to get tested by your children later, you need to listen to these three things. (laughs) Ezra had a firm commitment to learning God's word. He applied it sincerely in his own life. And he taught it to other Israelites. So he studied God's word, he lived it out, and he taught it. So firstly, Ezra studied God's word. Chapter 7 says all these things about Ezra. Verse 6, he was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses. Verse 10, he had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. Verse 11, he was a man learned in matters concerning the decrees and commands of the Lord. This is a guy who knows his Bible. And it is because he is well-versed in Scripture that he's able to see what God is doing And he's able to see where he might fit into God's sovereign plan. He knows that God's people can't remain in captivity in Babylon. He knows that God's promises must be fulfilled. He knows this from his reading of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He has the hope of God's presence in the new temple. He gets that from Ezekiel and Zechariah. He he has in mind God's promise to bless all the nations through Abraham, which we see in Genesis 12. He knows that God's kingdom will encompass all of the nations, not just Israel, but the whole world. And he sees that in Isaiah and Zechariah. And he has the sure hope of a future messianic king, again, from Isaiah, Hosea, and elsewhere in the Old Testament. Ezra was born in Babylon. He'd never even been to Jerusalem And yet his study of scripture assured him uh, that this period of captivity would be a passing phase in the history of this nation. He knew that Jerusalem had to be rebuilt and that had already started to happen. For Ezra, the study of scripture completely changed 
his perspective. It gave him an understanding of world history. It gave him an understanding of God's purposes. It gave him an understanding of what God is doing in the world and why. And it enabled him to locate himself in the midst of all that. And that is why uh, it is, well, because Ezra was able to see what God was doing, he was able to see what God was calling him to do. And that is why it's so important for us as Christians to read and understand the Bible. If Ezra's perspective and understanding were expanded by the study of Scripture, then how much more so ours? Uh, We live at a time when the fulfillment of God's promises are clearly visible through Christ and his church. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that brings people from all nations into his church, which is both the new Israel and the new temple, the place where God's spirit dwells. And right now we are waiting for Jesus to return to consummate and perfect that reality. That is the point in history where we are situated. As one commentator wrote, the better believers understand God's intentions for his people and the world, the better they are able to discern God's activity in their own setting and cooperate with him. But we get so caught up on the details, the, 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 the humdrum details of everyday life, that we don't lift our heads and look out to the horizon. We're not thinking of God's plan for the whole of creation and where we fit into it. Because we've got to go to work and do the school run and take the bins out and hoover the lounge and wash the car and mow the lawn. And if we're lucky, plan a holiday so that we can recover from all that. So then we can come back and start it all over again. Now, don't get me wrong. That's life. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But are we getting so caught up on the details that we're not seeing the big picture anymore? It's like one of those uh, magic eye pictures. Have you seen these? Uh, they may, may give some of you a headache. They've got this uh, intricate and repetitive pattern. And if you focus on the details of the pattern, you miss the whole point of the picture. You miss the one thing that the picture is meant to reveal. It's only when you step back and you look at the picture as a whole that all of a sudden this almost 3D image jumps out at you. Now, you probably haven't had long enough to see that well, it's gone already. Yet, you maybe didn't get long enough to see the, um, the image there. There is actually a cross in there, but I won't uh, make you go cross-eyed any longer trying to find it. Let me turn it off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so reading and understanding the Bible is like stepping back and looking at the big picture. All of a sudden, we see the point of it all. Our lives. Our existence, creation itself, the picture only makes sense when Jesus comes into focus. But the church is fast becoming biblically illiterate. The Church of England's own polling has revealed that most of its members don't read the Bible. 60% never read the Bible for themselves. And that statistic should shock us. Another poll revealed that only 20% of Australian Christians read the Bible daily. And I don't want to bash the Anglican church, but I suspect that the percentages might even be lower within our ranks. Do you know that it's a privilege 
to even own a Bible. In the early 1800s, there's a, uh, there was a Welsh girl by the name of Mary Jones, and she gave her life to Jesus at the age of about eight. And having learned to read, her greatest ambition was to own a Bible so that she could read it every day. So Mary saved for six years. She saved enough, uh, and she walked barefoot over rough terrain for 26 miles to a little town called Bala, where she knew she could purchase a Bible from the Reverend Thomas Charles. Mary Jones was the inspiration that led Thomas Charles to influence the Religious Tract Society to supply Wales with Bibles in the Welsh language. He was also inspired to found the British and Foreign Bible Society. Mary Jones is a Welsh national hero, and rightly so. But isn't it amazing what God can do with one girl's desire to read the Bible? If only we had that same kind of passion for God's word. When we read the Bible, we discover what God is doing in the world. And when we discover that, we discover why we're here, why we've been made. So Ezra understood what he had to do because he understood scripture. And he approached King Artaxerxes and he requested permission to uh, take a group of the exiles back to Jerusalem. And in verse 6, we read that the king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And when we read this letter from King Artaxerxes to Ezra, the, this uh, letter of authority, we, it details what the king was willing to, uh, to, to give Ezra. So silver and gold from the royal treasury, plus whatever Ezra could raise in Babylon. Uh, the king returned the sacred items from the original temple and entrusted them to, to, to Ezra so that he could take them back to Jerusalem. He gave tax exemptions for the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, and other workers. Basically, anyone uh, involved in the running of the temple was tax-exempt. He instructed all the treasurers in the area known as the Trans-Euphrates to provide Ezra with whatever he needed. Now, the king put a cap on that, but it was still an enormous amount that was being offered. And he gave Ezra authority to set up some kind of local government. So why would this Persian king offer Ezra so much? Well, we know that Persian kings often supported the religious laws and practices of various uh, people groups living in different regions of their empire. It was a way of gaining favor with the local population in an area of political unrest. But as a polytheist, someone who believes in more than one god, it's likely that Artaxerxes wanted to gain favor with the local god as much as with the local people. And that explains the king's actions from a human perspective. But that's only part of the story. Uh, Ezra had a different perspective because he was well-versed in Scripture. He interpreted the king's uh, support and generosity very differently. In verse, seven, uh, in verse 27, rather, he writes, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. So Ezra's not really interested in Artaxerxes' motives because he knows that God is in control. And ultimately, it is God who has shown him favor. But one thing's for sure, the king esteems Ezra highly and he trusts him 
completely. Ezra is clearly a man of integrity. We see that in verse 10. It says, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra didn't just study the law. He observed it. He lived it out. He was willing to step up to the plate. The founder of one of the UK's largest charities, the Oasis Trust, it's a charity that helps the homeless and disadvantaged. He recently tweeted this. He said, it's irresponsible to ask God to change things that God has given us the power to change. God gave Ezra the power to bring about major changes and reforms in Jerusalem. But for that to happen, Ezra had to put himself forward. He saw what God was doing and he realized that he needed to be a part of that. And as it turns out, a very significant part The journey from Babylon to Jerusalem took Ezra exactly four months, and it was a journey fraught with danger. Just think of the value of the gold and silver and precious articles that they were carrying. Now, the group that left Babylon was some 1,700 men. That might sound like a lot, but it'd be easy pickings for a local warlord. And it obviously crossed Ezra's mind to ask the king for protection. Uh, Because in chapter 8 we read this. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Ezra humbled himself before God and he put his trust in God to bring them safely to their destination, to Jerusalem. And when he got there and he saw the sin of the people, He took personal responsibility. Listen to Ezra's prayer. He prayed, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Ezra had only been in Jerusalem for four days and he was willing to take responsibility for the sins that had been committed there by his people over the past 90 years. This is a man who lives out his faith. He follows God's laws, he participates in God's plan, and he takes responsibility, not just for his own sin, but for the sins of the whole nation. And maybe it's this integrity that won Ezra such favor with King Artaxerxes. Integrity is so important. How often have you heard Christians and the church in general accused of hypocrisy? Loads of times, I bet. And sadly, it's often very easy to see why. When I worked for Alpha, I used to promote and facilitate the Alpha course in the British Armed Forces. So I came across a lot of chaplains and service personnel. And I'll never forget one junior rate from the Royal Navy telling me how the chaplain of a ship that he'd served on used to drink and cuss and swear and smoke and exchange pornography, pornographic DVDs with the lads on the mess deck. And it grieves me to even say that. Won't surprise you to learn that this chaplain had zero credibility. He was a laughingstock. No one took him seriously. Nevertheless, he was a serious hindrance to the spread of the gospel. Now that's an extreme example, but it goes to show that we shouldn't mistake biblical literacy for spiritual maturity. Let me say that again. We shouldn't mistake biblical literacy for spiritual maturity. He was a chaplain, a minister in the Church of England. He had a degree in theology. He'd studied the Bible, and yet the Word of God 
was having no bearing on the way that he lived his life. But let's not be too quick to point the finger. We're all hypocrites, aren't we? None of us is perfect. None of us lives exactly the life that we are called to live. But thanks be to God, if we've put our faith in Jesus, we are being gradually and uh, over time transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's an ongoing process. It lasts our whole life. But we need to keep reminding ourselves that knowledge is useless unless it translates into personal application. A little while ago, I went to the dentist and uh, she advised me to floss at least once a day. Now, I don't know whether any of you floss, uh, but I find it a really awkward thing to do. I can't seem to get the floss in where it's meant to go. All of a sudden, I become cack-handed. It's just the most annoying thing to have to do. Maybe it's just me, but uh, I don't do it. I know that flossing is good for me, but that knowledge doesn't translate into personal application. But in the overall scheme of things, flossing our teeth is uh, relatively insignificant. I think I can say that with impunity because I I don't think we've got any dentists in the congregation. But (laughs) have we? No. Okay. (laughs) Flossing's really important. (laughs) Make sure you do it. But living out the Christian faith, walking the walk, living for Jesus is hands down the most significant and important thing that we can do with our lives because that is actually what we've been made for. Ezra studied the law, but he also observed it. And if we want to have any sort of impact for Jesus, we need to study God's word and we need to live it out in our daily lives. It's in the obeying of the word that we experience God's blessing, not in the reading or the hearing of it. So Ezra studied God's word. He lived it out. And he taught it. And this was Ezra's calling. It was uh, his knowledge combined with his integrity that gave him the credentials to teach. And as we've heard, Ezra instigated major reforms in the life of the nation. Now, we can read something like this, and we might come away feeling that we've got to do exceptional things for God. We haven't. We've got to be exceptional in the ordinary things. Our starting point is not to think about how we can make major changes and reforms to our nation, albeit we might long to see our nation traveling in a more godly direction, and we might work towards that. But our starting point is to think how we can reform our own lives and the lives of those closest to us. How can we reform our families? How can we help one another to move in a more godly direction? One of the ways we can teach God's word is to read it and live it out, to give a visible demonstration of what the Christian life looks like. Ezra did that. But we can also teach in more conventional ways. And we all have someone that we can teach, or at the very least, learn with. A friend, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, an uncle, an aunt, a parent, whoever it might be. Nothing will help us to study, learn, understand, appreciate, and apply God's word like attempting to teach it to someone else. And believe me, you don't need a degree in theology to do this. I recently went to 
uh, the diocesan clergy conference, it was quite helpful. It was all about faith formation, uh, the process of becoming more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And I was particularly interested in the part about family faith formation. Uh, we were reminded that what we're meant to be doing as a church is supporting the growth and the learning that's happening at home. Take children's ministry, for example. It's not a case of outsourcing our children's faith formation to the church. You know, we'll bring the children to church. We send them off to uh, kids' church. They get uh, their spiritual food uh, for the week. Uh, job done. Erica and the team have, have, have uh, helped to form our children's faith. Now, that's not what we're doing. It's about resourcing, supporting, and reinforcing the learning that we hope is happening at home. It doesn't have to be complicated. Reading a children's Bible story at the meal table and then inviting questions and having a bit of a conversation, that's teaching. Teaching is really just passing on the faith. And we are all called to be involved in that. So we've seen today that God's hand was upon Ezra, who instigated uh, major religious, social, and political reforms in the nation. And the secret to his success was very simple. He read God's word. He lived it out, and he taught it. And each one of us here today is called to do the very same thing, because that is the only way that we will reform our lives, the life of this community, and ultimately the nation and the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, repent right now of the blasé attitude that we often have towards your word, towards studying your word, understanding it, and applying it in our lives. We pray, Father, that we can find the motivation and the resources to, to help us to do this. We pray, Father, that we will be a people of great integrity. We pray that our greatest uh, goal in life will be to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. To give a visible demonstration of what it means to be a Christian. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. We thank you that you have a plan for the whole of creation, a plan that we are to play a part in. And we pray, Lord, that increasingly as we understand the Bible, as we understand that the overarching narrative as we understand who you are and what you've done and why, we begin to see what it is that you're calling us to do. We pray that we will respond faithfully to your call on our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.